Hello, and welcome back to Imagine With Us, a podcast that ventures into the imaginations of marginalized thinkers from diverse fields, backgrounds, and identities in order to explore new pathways towards liberation. This episode was recorded in spring of 2022 by Bailey and is a part of the series on radical thinking while working at Stanford. I'm Cindy Ng, she, her, hers. I am the former Scott J.J. Shu, director of the Asian American Activity Center, but I just retired. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, so maybe if we could start by just like defining radicalism. I think it's like a word that we've started to like throw around a lot. Um, but I guess like what, what does it mean to you? Hmm. You know, I um, don't really use the word, um, but I guess... To me, it would mean um, defining what racial justice, social justice um, means. And to me, that means radical change. That is not just people need to change the way they think. Um, We need just a policy here, a policy there. We need to hire more DEI people. Um, It means changing um, systemic racism. It means ending white supremacy, which is the root of injustice um, in the US and and in the world. So to me, radicalism is um, making sure that when we talk about activism and change that we actually are looking at what is the root cause of injustice, inequity, et cetera. I'm just curious, is there like a reason why you don't tend to use the word radical? Hmm. And you know, I, I haven't thought about it. Yeah. I, I don't think there's any particular reasons. Not like I consciously don't use this word because um, I just haven't. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, So can you tell me about your time organizing before you started working at Stanford? Um, (laughs) I've been at Stanford 30 and a half years. (laughs) Um, But prior to that, um, well, I um, became involved as a senior in college. Um, And at the time there was the Vietnam War. And I, I was not um, really any kind of activist um, before then, but I saw that iconic photo of the Vietnamese mother um, carrying her baby and she had been napalmed and her back was on fire. Um, and I, I said, she looks like me, what is going on? And I think that's how I became um, um, radicalized, so to speak. Um, I became an anti-war activist and a community activist. Um, I joined the Chinese Progressive Association in San Francisco. Um, and we did um, community-based work like um, English as a se- second language classes for immigrants, uh, restaurant workers, uh, garment workers. We also did um, labor organizing, garment workers and restaurant workers. And I, um, so to give a little story, um, I and another um, CPA member were going to go get jobs in 
a hotel restaurant to organize the restaurant workers. Um, and in those days, restaurant workers wore white tops and black bottoms. So every day we would get our white tops and our black bottoms. And back then you didn't go to the HR office and fill out an application. You just knocked on the back door and asked to see the manager of the kitchen or restaurant. And you asked, um, do you have any jobs today? And they would say, no, come back tomorrow. So we did that, I don't know, a week or more. And I, I went one day by myself and he came out and he looked at me and said, but I hired you yesterday. He hired my friend. <laughs> you know, we all look alike. Um, so I um, ended up actually um, applying for jobs in um, a garment shop and got a job. Um, at a, um, I think they still exist, Corette. They make kind of these polyester leisure, leisure <laughs> clothing <laughs> that like, I think you probably see on cruises, older women. Um, but anyway, it was um, it, really interesting. Um, all the seamstresses were Asian. The women that pressed the clothes were black and the men that bagged and shipped the clothes were Latinx. So it was just really like, you know, well, this is really interesting. And I had no experience. I think the manager just thought um, she's English speaking, she's young, probably wondered why I would want to work there, but also thought, you know, I'm going to hire her because I can use her, you know. And so I kind of worked all from the back, the front seamstresses all the way to the back. So sometimes I would give seamstresses their bundles to sew. Same with the um, women pressing. And then sometimes I'd be in the back bagging clothes that were finished. Um, so, you know, the interesting thing, I wasn't the only activist there trying to organize. <laughs> um, so, but I was the only Asian. American. Um, and I did speak some Chinese and it got much better as I worked with the women. Um, and we developed like um, relationships and stuff. Um, and I was able to help, I think, because um, it was called piecework where like one woman put, made all the buttonholes, another woman put the buttons on, um, another one sewed the seams. And so I would bring the bundles to them for them to uh, work on. And each bundle, they would pull off a, um, a little slip and they'd be paid by how many slips they had at the end of the day. So it was piecework, it wasn't by hour. So it was how fast you could go. Um, and so, you know, it was very exploitative and, and I would help the women when they weren't, even then sometimes they weren't paid for the number of slips they had. You know, so, but I, I think going in fresh out of college, you know, I felt that savior complex. And so what I learned was it's not about um, getting away with doing as little as you can. These women worked hard. They, they valued work. You know, they uh, took pride in their work. They just wanted to be paid fairly for their work, you know. So I, I think I learned more from these women 
you know, um, in terms of work than, you know, my mindset in going in as kind of this savior complex. Um, so, so that, um, after that, I moved to New York and, and there um, did community work as well in New York, um, you know, helping tenants fight for heat and hot water. Um, and eventually, um, when Jesse Jackson um, in 84 decided to run for president, um, we formed an Asian Americans for Jesse Jackson. Um, and I distinctly remember the younger American born among us were talking about, well, how do we convince the immigrant older women to support a black man for president? Because we know there's anti-blackness in our community. And so we just talked and well, okay, here's our strategy, you know. And when we raised it in a meeting, this um, middle-aged immigrant Chinese speaking garment worker stood up and said, well, of course we're gonna endorse Jesse Jackson. It, almost like, are you stupid? You know, if a black man can't be become president, we can forget it. You know, so it was like we so underestimated, um, you know, their um, perspective and their ability to understand, you know, basically white supremacy. They knew that, you know, if black people can't be free, none of us are going to be free. So, so then we created the Asian Americans for Jesse Jackson and I got more into electoral work um, before coming back um, to the West Coast and, and taking the job at the QC. So that was, those stories are so good. <laughs> <laughs> there are many more. <laughs> I'm sure. Oh my gosh. I like also do like oral history interviewing. Mm, and mm -hmm. I was like, wow, like I could sit with you for like hours and just be like, you told mm -hmm. me mm -hmm. more. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Can you talk about like the transition to Stanford? Um, well, I, I came back to the West Coast because my family is on the West Coast and my mom was getting older. And I, I have two brothers and, you know, boys just don't um, do certain things, at least my brothers. So my mother would go and tomato sauce is on sale. I'm going to go get a case because I like to make spaghetti sauce. And so she'd take a bus to the shopping center, buy a case of canned, you know, except that what she got was Campbell's tomato soup, not tomato sauce. So she asked my brother, can you return it for me? No. <laughs> he was like, how embarrassing. So she would wait until I would come visit because I was in New York and then I would return it for her. So I, I think um, I just felt it was time she was getting older um, and it was time for me to, to move back. And so I needed a job. And someone <clears throat> told me about the job at the AQC. And I applied and I was very lucky to, to get the job. Um, and so then that's how that started. That was in 1991. Um, and it was right after the 89 takeover when, <clears throat> because in 89, the community centers were student run. Uh, there was, I think a halftime director of the AQC at that time, but um, there was, you know, it was still essentially student run. So 
and there were some egregious racist incidents on campus that um, students felt the administration, they um, put together this big committee to look into it. And students says, we don't want a committee that's gonna issue a report in a few years. There needs to be something done now. So they took over the president's office and demanded that um, the ethnic centers be institutionalized and have full-time staff and not left to students to run. Um, they demanded ethnic studies. Um, and so out of that came a committee to study ethnic studies, which then created CSRE. And the community centers were institutionalized and, and um, two staff were hired. There was no... Um, funding for programming. So I came in 91, which was like two years later. I had never had a job where I had to bring supplies from home. You know, it's usually the other way around. Oh, I just take a little piece of, you know, tape. <laughs> um, but it was so bad that I would go, there used to be a mail room in Old Union, and I would go there and get rubber bands, I would get envelopes, until finally, the woman looked at me and said, um, you know, you're supposed to buy those yourself. I said, oh, <laughs> but we didn't have the money. And so every center, when we wanted to do an event, we would go to San Francisco Chinatown, buy chicken wings and fried rice or noodles. Then we would plate it and sell the plates for $2 a plate. And we would raise $200 to do a program. This is at Stanford, right? And then El Centro would sell tacos, NAC would sell Indian tacos. I mean, how embarrassing. So then in 94, the students went on hunger strike and demanded funding for the community center. So Elvera, the director of Centro, she was one of the hunger strikers, she and her sister, Linda, yeah. And so that's when we got a little bit of money to do um, programming. We don't have a whole lot more than that today. So a lot of things have not changed, but um, that's what um, I came into um, in 91. And so there's been so much change that, and the, the communities have all grown and, and become more complex over time as well. So. Wow. I had no idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Oh yeah. Have you done an oral history for Stanford, the oral history society? Um, I did an interview. They were doing interviews recently about how um, we experienced COVID. Oh. Some of it was a little wrapped into that, but not um, not like j just focused on my experiences so much. How has working at Stanford changed your approach to your work, if at all? Hmm. Fundamentally, I don't know that it has changed my approach in that going back to how we started, um, I've always um, centered my work around um, um, fighting white supremacy and fighting institutionalized um, oppression and, and um, you know, colonialism, etc. Um, so and at Stanford, realizing that Stanford is, is, is a part of that, you know, um, all those systems that it is um, 
while it's in higher ed and it um, is an institution that portrays itself as for the greater good, um, it is part of the system. It's, it's not different from, you know, it, it's a corporation essentially. Um, so in that sense, you know, it, it's just more specifically, what is it that we're trying to change? What does rooting out systemic um, inequality, oppression, et cetera, white supremacy at Stanford, what does that look like? I think is just where the difference is from what I was doing before. Can you talk a little bit more about what that does look like at Stanford, like rooting out white supremacy at like a fundamentally like white supremacist institution? Yeah, I mean, I, I think like within larger society and other spaces, it's not uh, something that, you know, if we just do this, then we'll bring down white supremacy at Stanford and Stanford will then become like, you know, you hear this, <laughs> you know, it's now a just institution. Um, but I, I think it's um, calling out um, what needs to change. So I think it's centering um, students who are at the margins. So, you know, our students of color, our first gen low and or low income students, queer students, et cetera. Um, and how is Stanford as an institution not um, an institution where these students can be successful, can thrive? I kind of don't like the word thrive because how it's used at Stanford is not what I mean. But um, um, so, for example, because um, it's hard, it's kind of, this vague kind of thing. Um, so like admissions, uh, we were, the directors are asked to, to do a training of the admissions readers recently. And so, um, and Stanford for many, many years has, um, Stanford has always talked about DEI in one form or another. And admissions has always um, talked about a diverse class, diverse students. And granted, um, they have um, recruited more students from underrepresented ethnicities. In our community, when students um, said that Asian Americans might be 25%, but there are underrepresented ethnicities within that 25%, particularly Southeast Asian, Filipino, and that you need to disaggregate the data to understand this. So admissions did, um, and, and they increased recruitment from those ethnicities. So more needs to be done. But I think oftentimes it's numbers. We've got, you know, 70% this, you know, um, but, but how are you ensuring that these students, once they get to Stanford, their needs are being met? And often it's more, okay, we did it. We're like X percent, this or that or that. And then you just, okay, you're here. And you're not looking at the culture of Stanford, the culture of Stanford that is such that it's part of white supremacy. So who it serves are your white, privileged, 
elite students. So for admissions, I think one of the questions we got was, do your centers provide tutoring? And so I said, you know, I always tell my students, if you are struggling in a class, you go to office hours, you go to the TA, you go to the faculty, um, you get tutoring. I'm all about that. However, your perspective cannot be that we're admitting these students and they're gonna need tutoring because there's something about them that is deficient. And the problem is them, not Stanford. The problem is Stanford. So yes, it's great you, you recruit, you admitted these students. Many of them come from under-resourced schools and you can't look at it as they you know, need help. There's something they need to change in order to be successful. It has to be, what is Stanford going to change in order for these students who came from these under-resourced schools to be able to be as successful as your white rich student. So um, that might mean that, um, so for example, during, I think it was chemistry, it was chemistry. Um, it was during virtual shutdown. They scheduled a midterm for the day after the election. So students in the class were, can we postpone that? You know, these were students of color, queer, trans students, Muslim students. You know, this election is literally life or death for me. And I am not gonna be able to study tonight. And so they're like, you know, we, we set our uh, schedule um, well before the quarter started. So blah, 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 blah. And they wouldn't change it. So students had to actually write a letter and got 150 students to sign it. And only then did they agree to make some accommodations. So I think that's kind of the, an example of the culture of Stanford, where everything is geared not for students from these identities and understanding what is their world like and, and how does that impact their academics? Because it's not like you can shut yourself off when you're in the classroom, um, but not understanding who the students are and what the needs are, I think is an example of what needs to change. So I think it's, one is educating, like these people making these decisions and trying to change that culture. And then even on the level of within the classroom, you know, changing the culture there so that it's not just words, like we're inclusive. What does that actually mean? So, so sort of along those lines, like have you seen like institutional or cultural changes at Stanford, like in your 30 years here? I think what, Definitely, and the change has come as a result of student activism. So from the 89 takeover, which resulted in the ethnic um, centers becoming institutionalized to the 94 hunger strike, which resulted in a little bit of programming money to students fighting for a women's community center, fighting for a queer center, and those becoming a reality. Same with Marcaz. Um, all of that change has come about because of student 
advocacy. Most recently, um, so in 89, when the um, university created this committee to study multicultural whatever, um, that committee, one of the recommendations was that the community centers need three staff people. This was in 1987. And it wasn't until three and a half years ago, after students did a petition and met with Susie Brubaker Cole, met with Persis and demanded a third staff person. It was only then that it happened. Like, what was it since 87, like 35 years later. And, and by now the communities are bigger, they're more complex, three is not enough. Even back then, I think the report said three and then four. So, um, you know, those are, those are um, I think, changes. I think the changes, like I said, in our community where um, students um, went to admissions and said, these and this ethnicities are underrepresented, disaggregate the data. So that has continued to create change where our community is becoming more and more diverse. You know, not just Southeast Asian, Vietnamese, but Hmong, Laotian, Cambodian. Um, so those are just um, some of the changes I think that have all come about because of student um, protest. Most recently, I think because of George Floyd, um, you know, and students, you know, being part of Black Lives Matter, then the university has had to create this ideal and, and talk about, you know, um, you know, and then I think the graduate students, undergraduate students, faculty, staff, we're demanding that Afro-American studies be a department. So in the midst of the Lives Matter, the university had to say, okay. Um, so those are the kind of changes that only come about because students and, and other um, community members fight for them. Um, but on, on their own, it's gonna be committees and reports and, you know, like ideal, ideal is, I don't know how many committees there are. There's lots. <laughs> yeah, such a pretty acronym too. For yeah, I don't know, no one can remember what it stands for. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, I think just to close out a little bit um I'm wondering a little bit more about like solidarity like perhaps like among community centers and maybe even like in the work that you were doing before like what did that look like and how did that take place mm -hmm. yeah I think that community centers have always worked very closely together um when it was just the four um we had weekly meetings we use the acronym APOC which to us meant angry people of color but depending on who asked, it might be amiable people of color. <laughs> um, so, and we always, um, because there are common issues that, you know, we're all dealing with. So we always um, talked about what are those common issues? How do we work together to address those issues? What are distinct issues? How can we support your issues? And, and today, um, you know, there's seven centers. So, um, and they're all under centers for equity, community and leadership. So we meet like together still um, and talk in similar ways. Um, 
And, you know, examples would be when um, George Floyd was killed, then the other community centers, you know, issued statements of support and offered like um, support specifically to the Black House. I think when the anti-Asian violence um, was going on, similar um, support came to the AQC from the other centers. Um, I think in um, other work that I've done, coalition building around, for example, um, the Jesse Jackson campaign was critical. Um, so we at the Chinese Progressive Association um, did work in the Puerto Rican and the black communities um, and built ties there. And there really was a rainbow coalition. And the proof of it was Jesse won Manhattan, New York City, not, not Manhattan. He won New York City. And um, this was 88, the second time. On, on the heels of that, the first black mayor of New York was elected by that coalition. So um, that was the power of coalition building. And I, I think what's important for me and, and what we have been doing um, at the AQC is it's not just coalition building because it's kumbaya that if we just all hold hands and sing and sway that things will get better. It's important to understand what it is we're fighting, going back to the radicalism, um, that the struggles that each of our communities face is rooted in white supremacy. What is white supremacy? What is the history of white supremacy? How has white supremacy enabled the US to be the economic and political power that it is? And how is white supremacy continuing today to uphold those structures of power? It's been rooted in black enslavement. And no, slaves were never freed in the sense that it just went on in a different form. And now it's the, the prison system. Um, so for coalition, for, for example, for Asian Americans to understand <clears throat> it's not Asian lives matter too. I was so mad when I saw that. <laughs> um, or like in our community, students created this shirt um, what did it say? Yellow peril, black lives or something. So there was backlash. And so it's hard to understand that because you're trying, I mean, that was an expression of solidarity. Why are people mad? What it came down to is you have, you can't equate it in the sense that, you know, it, it's a, it's a struggle together, but we have to understand that it's rooted in um, black oppression and to dismantle white supremacy, you have to dismantle black oppression because it's built on and is surviving on that. So it's like what I said earlier, Asians won't be free until blacks are free. So in that sense, it's not like, like this. We can free ourselves without the black people freeing ourselves. No, it doesn't work that way. So it's not hierarchical in that the black struggle is more important. It's just understanding that to root out white supremacy is to root out anti-blackness. And that's something that we want in order for us to be free too. So. Thank you so much. That was great.